glass. Normally it has a counter, and now I see no counter showing. But we'll trust that that the problem is the local software, not the uh, the Skype system. So anyway, welcome. This is Sunday afternoon, about 4 p.m. our time uh, here in Taiwan, and Marcus is here in Taiwan. And so for UK time, it's what, about 10 in the morning? Or is it 11 now? It's about 10. It's about 10. Okay. And sharp. 10, 10. All right. So, uh, DJ, you have a question about right effort. Uh, and we can go all through it if you like. It's actually an important topic. You can imagine that it's important because it's one of the primary items on the Eightfold Noble Path. That's the first thing that can be said. Now, in Buddha's discussion of right effort, in uh, one of the particular sutta, number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, he introduces it by introducing, first off, the whole Eightfold Noble Path. He says, listen, monks, and I will tell you um, about right, noble unification of mind with its supports and requisites. Okay, so unification of mind here is what we mean by the word samati in English or is translated out in English as right noble concentration. But rather it's not, it's right unification of mind. So this is the starting point of uh, the path is one's right view that we're going to have a unified mind, that we're going to come to a state of integration, that we're going to stop having our indecisions and our warfares and our various ego states in conflict with one another and come to a state of wholeness, a state of unity. And that unification of mind, if you recognize it at a, at a, wi a wider thing, that means the unification of the mind and your reality with your environment also so that there's no conflicts and everything is integrated and everything is whole and so as we understand this uh right view is is that we're looking for wholeness we're looking for unification and that right effort is then one going to be one of the major ingredients to bring this about. We have to take the right effort with the right view in order to bring about this right unification of mind. And then the question is, well, when do we do this? And the answer is we do it when we remember to do it. Because if we say, oh, you should be doing it at this occasion or that occasion, then that means then that that's a rule. And rules are not made to be broken. They're made to be kept. And you're supposed to feel bad if you don't keep the rules. And so we're going to uh, look at this from a completely non-rule based system 
that we're going to practice when we remember to practice. And so remembering to practice is actually skill to be developed. So once we have these three, these first three items, which is right view, right uh, remembering to view, and the effort that it takes to do the viewing and to do something about it. This is the uh, the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, the Buddha also introduces it. Um, the, the funny thing about the, the suttas is that sometimes they just see overwhelming because there's just so much verbiage. There's a lot of repetitive and that kind of thing. And in that regard, that means that one individual word may not be so valuable. Hello, Asher. Hi, Asher. Welcome to come. So in this regard, no, there is one word that has a very, very significant meaning and is often not translated or looked over. And that's when the Buddha says that I'm going to teach you right noble unification of mind with its supports and its features. That means that there's going to be a difference between the supports and the features for right unification of mind and right effort and right view and right um, remembering and also right attitude are the supports for the right unification of mind and the features of the right unification of mind is, is that now the behavior that one takes is done with a noble mind. Because of that, we're not going to be doing things that a non-noble mind would do. This is where, uh, let us say, noble sila comes in. It comes in as the result or the features of having right unification of mind to where the way that Buddhism in a normal way is taught, just like Sunday school, is that if you don't do what you're told to do, you're going to go to hell. Ooh You've heard that before in various phrases, but if you don't do what you're told to do by whichever authority or whatever going on, if you don't do what you're told to do, you're going to go to hell. This is the way that morality is taught to stupid people. What do we mean by stupid people? I'm talking about infants, children, people who have no wisdom to see that our wrongdoing actually creates hell. That's what we're actually beginning to understand is, is that our uh, wrong behavior and our wrong actions that are taken from not having a unified mind, that's what creates the hell that we're in. Now, we can actually use that word hell now as a transition into the sense of dukkha, to where the word hell that we have in English is absolutely the worst kind of suffering whatever you can imagine, and then way beyond that, whatever your imagination is, suffering is even worse than that in hell. And so we're talking about hell as absolute dukkha, except that being uncomfortable is being uncomfortable. Being dissatisfied is being dissatisfied. Being unhappy is being unhappy. 
And after you are unhappy, the degrees of unhappiness seem to not matter so much. That we're looking at kind of a point of tipping between are we going to be in hell? Are we going to be out of it? Are we going to be in dukkha or are we going to be out of it? Are we going to be in state of satisfaction? Or are we going to be out of it? This is the way of looking and that what's that's what makes the actual practice of the Buddha so simple is because it's like turning a switch. It's like, uh, as it were, changing the channel. People in the in the Western society um, in regards to Buddhism are always talking about like this like st stream entry or something else as a point of no return. So things are in quotes fixed. So what you're saying is it's more like a muscle. Uh, is there any place in, in development of those skills where this muscle is like becoming some kind of tissue which, ne which never has atrophy anymore? Actually, that's a, a perfection or a dream state. Yeah. That magical Westerners thinking. are a magical thinking, precisely. All right. What we are looking for, in fact, different than that is, is that stream entry is a place along the way where you can say then that because we're no longer fighting with ourselves and our environment so much as a stream enterer, that means that there's very little effort. Yeah. So stream entry is very, very little effort. Let's imagine that it's like this. Let us say that you have just slipped in the mud and fallen into a fast moving river. And here you are hanging on to the bank by whatever leaves and, and twigs and grass that you can. And you're struggling mightily. Yep. But all we have to do is let go. <laughs> and now we're in the stream. The point, though, in this is that we have to let go of that struggle over and over and over and over and over again. And as we got time, used to not uh, as we got used to struggling. Because we've gotten used to struggling precisely. Our struggle is our bad habit. So after uh, keeping that analogy going that after we have entered that uh, that stream, we see something nice and beautiful on the bank. And so immediately we swim over to and start pulling on the grass to try to get ourselves back out of the creek. <laughs> yep. And then finally we say, oh, I don't need that. I don't want it anymore. And I'll let go. And now I'm back in the river again or back into the creek. <laughs> and then I see something beautiful on the shore again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe I see a great big rock in the river and I say, oh, no, I don't want to hit that. So I'm going to try to get out of the river now. And so I'm back on trying to struggle to get back in, uh, get back on the beach. So, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> I, well, welcome to being <laughs> in Western society. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But in fact, it is kind of exhausting. That's what we want to actually look at. We can, in fact, use the outbreath, that exhaust, to just kind of let it go. 
to go ahead and relax. And so the question is, well, where does right effort come in? Because obviously this clinging that we do to the shore is actually wrong effort. Because we're fighting against the tide, we're fighting against reality, we're wanting something that's different than the way that it is. And so one's right effort is in a way very easy to do, and that is to just let go. Accept. Many times the letting go is like prying my cold, dead hands off of this rifle. <laughs> that, <laughs> we cling to some things really, really strongly. And which means then that a thought will get in the mind and we will struggle with it as meditation students will struggle to try to get that thought back out of the mind, thinking that that's right effort. Where in fact, it just comes back again and we struggle to get rid of it again and it comes back again and we struggle to get rid of it again. That struggling then is the issue. The That's right where all way. the dark night issues come from. Exactly, especially since the students who are practicing the kind of practices that bring on a dark night are not yeah. actually ever doing what needs to be done, and that is to do the letting go. Yeah. Or gladdening uh, the mind. Gladdening the mind, to cha change the mind, to change what we're thinking about. That in fact, what the Mahasi method generally teaches in the West look is to look, look, look. look at what you're clinging to. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. is the where is the advice of and take the right effort to turn it loose? Don't think about a, 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 a purple elephant. Well, actually, uh, by talking about purple elephants, we can um, actually uh, point people in the right direction. The problem here with the dark night of the soul kind of thing is, is that the students eventually on their own will wake up. This is actually part of the procedure that's laid out in the 16 stages of insight that I've almost got them memorized that they're uh, starting with step six, fear, misery, Disgust, despair, a great desire to get out, followed by a redefining and restructuring the practice, which is step then 11. And then step 12 is the Eightfold to Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. It's Funny more like, like, that. like morning, like a morning process. Like, is, right. Is that the and I call morning immediately. I say, let's skip the first 11 steps of the practice and go right to step 12 immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes absolute sense. And then any um, dark moments that you're having is because the mind has now forgotten to practice correctly and we're sliding back into our old habits. These old habits, by the way, have been ground in. Whatever age you are, that's 365 times that age you are, times probably yep. about 
10 times more than that because it happens about every hour or so. Look how many times you have been practicing yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever thoughts, systems that you have. And so we're actually going to be countering that. So, so I paraphrase that, it. So I paraphrase it in a way that uh, uh, I'm. Tr I have a house, and there are stones uh, uh, in in that house uh, making up that house. And I don't uh, try to uh, try to change like uh, the whole house in just demolishing it. But I took every little stone, attached something else to it, and then rearranged those while the house is completely uh, in uh, uh, living conditions, let's say. You can use the house. Absolutely. Another way yeah. of saying it is, is that you're going to be cleaning the house, which is nothing but a pile of stones in a particular mm -hmm. order because there's no furniture in there. But you're going to clean it. Let us say that the house used to be a keel, uh, a kill, or a place where they kept... Um, animals or something like that so that mm -hmm. just coming in and giving it a paint job is not going to do uh, that yeah. we actually do have to clean it yeah, yeah, yeah and the way to clean it then is to clean one stone at a time yes one stone at a time so we polish this one and, and the whole house is just full of these stones and we have to keep cleaning them one at a time Guess what? While we're cleaning these stones and then go to move other stones and cleaning them, these stones wind up getting a bit dirty again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems to be no end to the process. And yet there is a, um, a homeostasis that you will reach. There's another way of talking about it, and that is, uh, uh, first off, the important thing is just to recognize in this little uh, uh, example that I'm using is that things get old and they lose weight. But we keep piling stuff on and we keep piling stuff on so that the pile stays pretty big, but sometimes it gets a little smaller because of the age of things. Okay. And so let's put that pile on one side and then we have another pile on the other. And these two things are actually on the scale. So if I put stuff on the left one, it gets heavy over time, but sometimes things lighten up because they die off or they're no longer important or whatever. And so they're not as weighty, they're not as meaningful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically what we're going to be practicing with Anapanasati is intentionally putting stuff on the right end of the scale rather than just letting happen haphazardly the way that we've done our whole lives that we've never really taken a look at the kind of thoughts that we have to see whether this thoughts holds them or not. We just pile it on. Full responsibility. So right now, this is the responsibility of looking at what kind of thought we have and then with right effort, changing that thought to a wholesome thought rather than an unwholesome thought. That there's many different ways and degrees that we can do this. But the important one is, is that we have to actually change the mind. We have to change the thought that's in the mind right this very moment from something that's uh, whatever it is now into something more wholesome. Yeah.
Okay, so let us say that things are on a scale from one to 10. And that is, is that if you are putting a lot of heavy, heavy duty stuff at a 10, then starting putting nines on it is not going to be of a lot of value. <laughs> or putting a lot of eights on it. However, an eight is better than a nine if you're also counterbalancing that by putting a lot of zeros and ones and twos and whatnot. And so we're beginning to look at a way of getting a balance here and the, so that we can swing it out of you being a victim, unhappy person into being a very, very lighthearted, easygoing, happy champion, simply by piling easygoing, lighthearted champion on that scale and not raw, putting so raw. much. Pardon? Raw, raw. Raw. Not uh, R O A R, like raw, raw. Oh, raw, right. The exactly. Lion, the lion. Yes. I had a funny yeah. point. If if we can, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a segue, but it's related to, you know, how the the story of the Buddha um, teaching the ascetics or the Brahmins who were waiting for him kind of or the he was the first to uh teach to it's called the lion's raw right yes yeah is is that is, i mean mm, mm. there's the little lion's roar and the large lion's roar you may be referring to the to the smaller one the the larger one i know pretty well and there's there's no brahmins in this it. is and, this is a bit okay my mistake there's um it's a bit of a joke. I mean, if it's not true, it's still it's still pretty funny. That how is the lion's roar really just the Buddha showing them how to relax and going, <sighs> you know? <laughs> well, isn't that what a what a lion does? He just makes it in a lion's kind of way. <gasps> <sighs> hmm. So, in any case. Back to the point is that we have to continue to take the effort to examine what kind of thoughts we have and to change it, put something that's more wholesome on the moment. For me, in, my practice, in my practice right now, it's like mostly this little, I see this little like, like a picture like very 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 subtle sometimes and very like very fast extremely fast uh and then immediately there is uh like it's not even a bodily feeling anymore so much it's more like this it's, it's more like a field around the bodily sensation in the body attached to this feeling is like this perception of things like like uh seeing if I take mindfulness on this, then I can see that there is something seeing itself as itself attached with all this preconceptions and thoughts and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it gets so much, it gets so much, I don't know if it gets so much attention or if it's just too much for the, the practice point I'm at now, this, the, the level I'm at now. So that well, I'm just too weak or the things are too, like, like to stir it up or something. 
actually what you're pointing at in the, is the direction of working too hard. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're That's working the thing too with hard. Germans. That's right. That the um, the right effort actually is an easy effort that we do over and over and over again. Just the right amount of effort. Just the right amount of effort to get the job yes. done. Yes. Just the smallest amount of effort to get the job done. That's one's right effort. Now, the thing of it is, is this going to change? Yes. Um, <clears throat> and the example is, is that if you're going to be pushing a very, very heavy object like a car that won't start and you're going to move it down the road a bit, it takes a whole lot more work or effort to get the car rolling than it does to keep it rolling. Exactly. So exactly. this is the way that we want to look at it is just the nudge, just the nudge, just the nudge over and over again, because if we don't keep nudging the car once we've got it going, it will stop. And now it's going to take more effort to get it started again. So this is one of the qualities of one's right effort that once we get things rolling, if we keep things rolling, the effort uh, is reduced. But a lot of us will have the idea of, oh, I've got it going now, I can relax. My meditation is working so well and I feel so great and then they don't meditate for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden they will crash land or they'll you know, get a great big wake up call or a dark night or something. <laughs> And now yeah, it me, feels like that you got to start all over yeah. again. Yeah, for me, it's mostly that it's not about like, say, uh, over and over effort. It's probably more that if things change and there are, there are, let's say, I have to adapt to it. This adaption process takes sometimes such a weird turn that I'm not able to see what I'm doing in, in, in that moment. And this moment or this, this series of moments more likely is just uh, not really paying attention to what is happening right now. So I'm okay. get, I get lost somewhere and I don't know that I get lost somewhere. So it takes sometimes a little while. When I assume that you're talking about normal daily life, that when we are uh, having only a practice that is normal daily life, we miss a lot of the subtleties and we also miss uh, the skill building. Uh, an example of that would be that a musician generally does practice to, um, to not only just keep up his repertoire, but also to learn new music requires practice. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that we are practicing correctly, which is different than living our lives normally, which we could use the word uh, performance. Just like a musician will perform publicly, but performance in public is not the same as private practice. I mean, you described an art earlier. You just described an art. I mean, an art. An art. Art. A, A R T, yes. Yes. I mean, uh -huh. Buddhism method, applying the Buddhist method is, is an art more than it is like 
Westerners mostly see it, like this step of progressing from one to 10 or something like this, and then everything is solved and whoo. I, I make very little distinction between what you're referring to as art or science. Yes. And oh. prefer instead Perfect. to look at the distinction between performing art and static art. Static art is like the artist who is sitting in his chamber doing his artwork and then taking it on the street and selling it after it's finished. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's actually very similar to composition of music. To where the composer sits at a keyboard by himself and his pen and ink and maybe uh, 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 some kind of instrument in the old days, it would be a scribe. Nowadays, he'll use a computer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or writing. But then that piece of music is taken to a, a dance band, <laughs> if it's Beethoven, maybe an orchestra, and it's going to be performed live. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the distinction between the static and the performative. Also, science has got both of those kind of things to where um, the experimentation is like the performative part, but Einstein sitting uh, on the bus and musing about the speed of light, that's different. That's more of the um, static getting our mind together. So we're actually now going to talk about our uh, meditation in those two ways also. Living our lives and being in public and the and uh, operating with our environment then is going to be the active or the, uh, the performative. Mm -hmm. And our actual practice of Anapanasati then is going to be done in seclusion so that we could really deal with what's happening only in the mind rather than what's happening in the audience or what's happening on stage or what's happening wherever, that we can put all of that stuff aside. The Buddha has a, um, uh, an analogy or a simile for this, and that is the, uh, I use the word, the log in the bog. The log in the that. bog. The log in the bog is um, when when a tree falls in the swamp, it will get waterlogged and it cannot be set on fire. But if you take the log out of the bog and put it on the beach, it's still very wet and still cannot be set on fire. It has to have some time to dry out. And that drying process is both the sun and uh, which is actually looking at it and then also the uh, the weight of the water is pulled down by gravity, okay, which would be also we can think of that as one's right effort. But we have to be out of the bog, we have to be out of the world or out of our performance mode into practice mode. Mm -hmm. And by getting the mind into this practice mode, in other words, uh, the way that I actually recommend is, is to do this uh, because you don't with Hanapanasati, you don't need a musical instrument to carry around. You don't have to carry around a mud disc. You don't have to carry around a Buddha Rupa or a set of beads or anything else at all. That when you're ready, when you remember to practice, you're ready to practice. You've got everything you need. You carry it right with you. 
Why? Because our object of meditation is the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind objects, and they're with you all the time. And so uh, we say that, well, what we're going to work with then is the body, the feeling, the mind, and the mind's objects that are completely free as best we can from all of the outside disturbances. When we do get in seclusion, though, what we find out is, is that we didn't really get secluded because we brought the world with us, just like that log is does not get secluded from the bog by barely, merely being pulled out of it. He is still completely saturated with that bog. And so our practice then is going to be the practice of removing the water from the log and that this is part of the problem of living a life to where we're practicing a little bit, let's say an hour a day and then going living 23 hours a day in a normal life. And then we come back and we note for an hour a day and then we go back 23 hours a day. Well, now here's an interesting point about that. And that is that we spend our whole lives not taking much consideration with what we're doing, dealing with and having a whole lot of dukkha and a whole lot of unwholesome thoughts. And then we practice for an hour a day trying to get a few wholesome thoughts in there. And then we go back 23 hours a day to the unwholesome thoughts. Which one's going to win on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one who is really, really already established plus hogs almost all of your time. Or this new thing that we're just beginning to play with, just beginning to piddle with. So that means that we have to uh, pay very careful attention to how valuable our time is in this practice. And so when people sit down for an hour of meditation, which is normally what's recommended, 45 minutes in group settings and then an hour in a retreat or whatever, but the idea then is, is the longer you sit, the better, right? I don't really, I don't really, um, let's say, uh, discriminate, discriminate anymore. This, those things, because I, I do this for a couple of years now, and I realized that uh, if I only do it as you described right now, it just makes me totally crazy. I mean, I, I just couldn't do it, so I started to. Well, hang on for a second. When I walk, let's, let's, when I this, this, this. Let's, let's talk about it in a different way then, because all I'm going to do is, so what you're actually telling me now is, is that the way that I'm describing it doesn't work for you. Uh, doesn't work yes. for anybody. <laughs> 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 it's a non-functioning method. Yeah, yeah And the exactly. reason that it, and there's a whole lot of reasons why it's a non-functioning method. One of the reasons why it's a non-functioning method is when the students sit down, they don't sit down with the strong intention of, I'm going to get something out of this right here, right now. They sit down with the intention of, I've got to put an hour in. When's the bell going to ring? I mean, how long is it before the students start thinking about, I want this to be over? Poor people. But Oftentimes, people don't like meditation, and what we're doing here is we're actually intentionally practicing something that we really like to do, and we want That's to boring. do it often, but it doesn't last very long because the mind gets tired. 
Look about how many things that you move from thing to thing to thing. You might be working on your laptop all day, but how many different programs do you use moving back and forth here and there, up and down, that yeah. the human's attention span is not very long? And so generally in an hour's time or 30 minutes time, the mind is going to get tired and then we're beginning to waste the second half of the time. Well, the other part is, is that in the beginning of an hour sitting, <laughs> the students will often say, well, I've got time here. Let me pedal a little bit and then I'll practice. And by the time that he is ready to practice, he's not able to practice because he's been sitting too long and his arms are tired or whatever like this. And so generally long sittings are not useful. What's more useful is to take that hour a day. This is one's right effort now because mm -hmm. on those long sittings, our effort is spotty and sometimes not always very good. But if we break the day up so that we're only going to be practicing for a short period of time, say 10 to 20 minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'll let you guys experiment with that and take that same hour now you're beginning to get more value out of it because in uh, let us say that you're going to be sitting for 10 minutes six times a day when you first get up in the morning when you first go to sleep at night or when you get into bed before you go to sleep um on lunch breaks on travel times i mean there's mm -hmm. easy enough to figure out 10 minutes here or there and 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 whatnot smokers do anapanasati <laughs> during your smoke break for that whole cigarette do anapanasati that's the way of looking at it okay that we do have this time to do it so that's the first thing is is that we're going to be doing this often to break up the day rather than setting aside a long period of time to do it we're going to be breaking it up throughout the day and when we sit down, we're going to sit down directly with the intention of doing these things that are we've already started dis discussing, which is I'm intentionally now going to be mindful. I'm intentionally now going to be watching the kind of thoughts that arise. I'm mm -hmm. going to be intentionally holding the body still, and I'm also going to be intentionally breathing very well. And yes. so as I start with this, uh, so if we if we start doing this practice, we can immediately begin to look at the mind and think of, oh, I can have a better thought than this and start moving the scale from a nine to an eight to a seven, or if you can, put it all the way over into the wholesome. Now, the thing of it is about wholesome and unwholesome thoughts is not only are they on a scale, but they're kind of hard to figure out. What's a wholesome thought and what's not a wholesome thought and almost always something that the students will ask. The answer is that's a skill to be developed. And that's what we mean by right view your right view will increase so that you can see what's an unwholesome thought and what's a wholesome thought. And as you begin to practice more, you'll begin to recognize, oh, I can do better than this right now. But a good way to start 
to recognize, uh, uh, let us say, a way of looking at it from the perspective of, yeah, I know I'm doing Anapanasati correctly when I'm having these kind of thoughts. Or another way of saying it, well, what kind of thoughts do we have that we know are wholesome versus the kind of thoughts that we have that we know are unwholesome? And let's deal with the in-between later. In other words, we we can now define a zero and we can define a 10. Let's let one through nine be something that needs to be discovered for oneself. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the way to look at it. Okay, so let's get number 10 and number zero well established. Number zero. Uh, that's interesting. Pardon? That's very interesting right now. Okay, so number 10, the most unwholesome thoughts that you could have, you'll still have them from time to time. Look at them. Thoughts of killing. I mean, when I mention uh, Vladimir Putin, (laughs) (laughs) you see what I mean? Okay, so unwholesome thoughts. Uh, thoughts of harm, thoughts of disgust, thoughts of not liking, thoughts of uh, uh, agitation and worry, all of that kind of stuff could be considered unwholesome. But thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of harming, those would mm-hmm. definitely be a 10. Mm-hmm. Okay, so down at the other end of the scale, the kind of thoughts that we know for sure are going to be absolutely wholesome would be thoughts of this caring moment. No, caring is something about the past and the future. Ah. That's that's in between. No, we would have thoughts of this moment is okay. This moment is satisfying. Caring actually is something that comes out of somebody's rule bag. You're supposed to care for people even those you don't care for. (laughs) So uh, let's leave those kind of thoughts aside dealing with the world and deal with this present moment Mm -hmm. in Anapanasati in the sense of getting the mind dried out of the society. Let's come to the really here now in the sense that in this moment, we're breathing. In this moment, we've got a particular posture. In this wow. moment, we have this body. Got it. And we, we can enjoy this body right here, right now. We can enjoy this breath. Everybody take a breath and enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, don't take it. Wait until you enjoy it. Let's see how long it takes before somebody dies. Because if <laughs> you don't take a breath, you're going to die. So, taking a deep, relaxing breath and taking the value out of that, knowing that this breath is going to keep me alive. I'm alive. That's another very healthy thing. Most people have thoughts of, I'm dying here. (laughs) I can't stand this anymore. Those are all unwholesome thoughts. But thoughts of being alive, thoughts of... Uh, this is marvelous. Thoughts of uh, this present moment being <laughs> as good as it really is. 
this is what we mean by gladdening the mind is actually uh, for the best that we know, let's get absolutely for 100% sure wholesome thoughts. Oh, man. <laughs> this is so good. This is so good. I'm, I'm really like, my spine is like, like <laughs> burning right now. <sighs> so this is the right effort that we take is to remove unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in. And if you're an ordinary person just getting started, those unwholesome thoughts are going to come right back. And so the next kind of thought that the ordinary person has is I just got rid of you and here you are again. And now we're in a state of disgust. Mild disgust, but it's not wholesome. What we need to do instead is we begin to make friends with all the parts of us that we don't like, including this thought that comes back when I would rather have a wholesome thought instead. Because if I have unwholesome thoughts about my unwholesome thoughts, where is that going to take us? <laughs> but if we can have wholesome thoughts about our unwholesome thoughts, where is that going to take us? Oh, yeah. All right. So this is how we're beginning to learn to practice is, is that we do have to see these unwholesome thoughts and change them happily rather than being disgusted by them thinking that we've gotten finished with that because you're not going to be finished not ever going to be finished this is beautiful up until the last breath you take and so it's really a good idea to be ready for that last breath so that it too and the thoughts you're having about it are also wholesome it's going to be wonderful. It's just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't wait to die. <laughs> <laughs> Never done it before. I'm all excited and exuberated about what's it really like, you guys? I mean, nobody knows. Not one of you can answer my question, what's my death going to be like? <laughs> Robert, you got your hand in the air. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to... You said some. Um, sorry. Uh, do you think saying that stream entry doesn't exist could discourage certain practitioners from meditating? Because they might think, well, it doesn't exist, so I'm not going to practice as much, and they won't get as many benefits as someone who had that goal. Stream entry. Yeah. What is stream entry? Um. Like it's like the secession event according to some people and not others ah here's the thing about stream entry is is that it is bandied about like a ball in western buddhism to the point that nobody knows what they're talking about because everybody's talking about a ball Without ever understanding that there's basketballs and baseballs and solid balls and marbles and uh, uh, steel ball bearings and uh, planets. I mean, there's all kinds of balls. <laughs> I know I got a couple. So. 
And those are not the same kind of balls that we were thinking about before. Okay, so here's that's the problem with stream entry is, is that everybody's got their own definition and version of what it is. And that you'll often hear people, for instance, going on to Reddit and says, oh, my teacher said that I had because uh, I told him about my experience. And he says that experience means that now you're soda upon it. Experiences don't decide what soda upon is. And yet that's we're very, very event oriented in the Western mind. And so we think that an event is meaningful, an experience, an awakening, an insight. And yet uh, what we're really beginning to understand is the real practice of the Buddha is a um, it's a process. Yeah, there's some milestones along the process, but um, it's better to see the milestone when you're at the milestone and says, hmm, now I know what this milestone means because here I am. But most people think of <clears throat> Sotapan as a milestone way off into the future. Another way that they look about it is, is that uh, remember the analogy that I was giving about clinging to the shore and then letting go and being in the stream and then clinging to the shore again. That's much more like it that in fact there. <clears throat> it's not an event. It's a process that you look back on and say, yeah, I've got I've had that. I've been there. I've done that. And so we recognize it then as a, as a milestone. Now, uh, I would rather continue where we're going uh, with with right effort and circle back around on uh, stream entry if we have time to. But if not, we can at least point in the right direction of Sutta number 48 in the Majjhima Nikaya has seven stages. Seven things are not stages, excuse me, seven knowledges. The seven knowledges of the Sotapan. Now, the thing about a knowledge is sometimes you have a knowledge and sometimes you don't. Robert, within 10 minutes after the call last week, I do remember that it was in Majjhima Nikaya number 22, the uh, four items on uh, the list of uh, being free, like uh, the door unbolted, the um, banner, the weapon, and the uh, the trench. Those four things, I remember exactly where it is now. But I didn't remember then. That's a proof that knowledge goes up and down and up and down. So even though we have seven knowledges of Soda Pan, that doesn't mean that the person's got all seven knowledges all at the same time, all the time. That's the problem with the Western mentality. They think of it as Sotapan is like getting a diploma. Once you've got the diploma and you've left the university and you paid your bills and they've got you in your books as a Bachelor of Science, that means from now on you're a Bachelor of Science or a PhD or whatever like that. That some people actually give um, certificates for teaching the Dhamma. 
You pay $7,000 and take his online course and come to visit him and he'll give you a certificate and says that now you're a Dhamma teacher. And me? Well, let us say I'll, I'll change the word a little bit. I think, in fact, you don't get a certificate for being a Dhamma teacher. You get a certificate for being a meditation teacher. And occasionally I'm a meditation teacher. Sometimes I'm a Dhamma teacher. I would rather just feel like and, and let you guys see me as just an old friend who tends to know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> just tends. <laughs> without having to have any of these strange labels of soda pond and whatnot. Because uh, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like a soda pond and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like a soda pond and then later when you don't, now you're beating yourself up because you don't feel like a soda pond anymore. Yeah, so with the better. Yeah, so so let's not worry too much about what a soda pond in is. Instead, let's look at the seven knowledges that are required. As one progresses, you can see how that happens. And, and in fact, we can work that back in with one's right effort. But before we get into that, we have to come back and 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 put a hitch in our uh, eightfold noble path to make it complete enough so that we can go there. And so this is where we're looking for is, is that when we have right view, right looking, right effort to change the thought that we have and the right at, uh, excuse me, the right uh, remembering to do this over and over and over again, as our skill develops, we'll remember more often. As our skill develops, not only do we remember more often, but because we can, it's actually easier now to throw those unwholesome thoughts out. And we begin to feel like we can do it. All of us in the beginning of a meditation, we all feel like losers. In fact, we came to meditation because we felt like losers. Any winners are not going to come to meditation, just like psychopaths are not going to go to psychotherapy. They're not. Psychopaths do not practice meditation because they're too busy being better than everybody else to recognize what problems they actually got in their own mind. So we come to meditation as a loser. I want this, I want that, I've got dukkha here. And we have to start to change that attitude. And this is what the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path really is, is attitude. The Pali word for it is samasankapa. And what this actually means, uh, we, we kind of understand the word attitude. Let's go a little bit deeper into it. Another way of looking at attitude is a leaning, that we, a tendency, okay? And a tendency is the way that we lean. A tree is going to fall over in the way that it is leaning. The, the woodcutters will cut it so that it's going to lean in a certain direction because that means it's going to fall in that particular direction. And what we're doing here is we're beginning to catch how we're leaning. And so the victim's attitude or the way that we lean towards things is we lean into them as a victim rather than as a winner. 
And the right uh, effort then is to begin to see that and to, with right view and to change it, to start talking yourself into, I can do this. I can handle this. This is good enough. I can survive this next breath. I can handle it. I can handle sitting in this chair for at least one more minute. Or maybe 10 seconds, but I can handle mm -hmm. 10 seconds. Okay, so we begin to change the attitude. Now, as we change this attitude, it begins then to march into the first step. The first step of nobility, which is also the first step of Sotapan. And the first step along the way is the knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind can become with hindrances or how sticky the situation is, I can clean it out. Now, I say two different ways. One is no matter how uh, polluted or obstructed or hindered the mind is, is reminiscent then of a sitting practice. Here I am sitting on the floor with nothing to do, no place to go, and I'm thinking about goblins, or I'm thinking about Putin, or I'm thinking about uh, Berlin, or I'm thinking about mommy, or I'm thinking about gorgeous babe, or I'm thinking about all kinds of stuff that are not here. But I know for sure that I can catch my mind with all of that stuff and throw all of that out and come back to this present moment and be here now and to have it a very pleasant moment. That's different than the other side of it, which would be that I can handle this situation no matter what events are happening right now that would cause my mind to become polluted with unwholesome thoughts about this particular moment in time. And an example of that is just being told by the doctor you've got prostate cancer or just being uh, notified by that luscious babe that she thinks you're a tramp and she doesn't want to see you ever again. Or um, let us say that you hear the sirens and they see the, the red and yellow or red and blue lights and you know that you're about to get stopped by a cop. These are the times when we need sati the most. And we also need the attitude that it does not matter what happens in life, that cops can bust, girls can reject, moms can die, dogs can die, children can misbehave, judges can lock me up. It doesn't matter what happens. Even the uh, father death with his uh, uh, sheath or uh, sigh, he's going to come get me. That's going to happen. So we have these two areas. One is for practice, and then the other one is for the performance. The practice is, is that it does not matter what my mind has in it. I can clean that stuff out while I'm sitting here with no place to go and nothing to do. Why can't I enjoy myself when I'm around no one and I'm all alone? Why Sorry to I interrupt. Hi, yes. have you some have you some um, audiovisual material uh, uh, to to? let's say, as a, as a reminder or as an example, so you can reinforce that? Some videos well, or some... I saw this video of this, uh, of this uh, Muslim uh, who was forgiving uh, this um, very, very young kid who killed his nephew. 
on the internet. I mean, those those things are very powerful. Well, if you find them, go get mm -hmm. powered up. <laughs> mm -hmm. You have no recommendations fact, for something like that. Well, yes, I do. And that mm -hmm. is the recommendation of the movies and videos that you play between your ears. Those are what you need to look at. An example then on that regard of people ask me, well, what book should I read? And I say the book between your ears. That's the book that needs to be read. You need to see what you're doing. You need to see um, that, in fact, you can reflect upon that. One of the reflections that you can have is how are you going to die? And then you go through the routines, dying at sea, dying by falling out of an airplane, dying by getting caught on fire with my own got bottle of gasoline sitting right here, dying in the bed in the hospital, dying in the bed at a home, getting <laughs> struck by lightning, getting struck by a car. I mean, there's a lot of ways to go. How are you going to handle them? Because you That's can. That's very helpful. Yes, That's very helpful. You, you can figure out ways to die, and you can also figure out how you're going to feel when you die. Yes. You can also uh, go and, and watch the, uh, the cops on YouTube. There's a lot of videos of cops abusing people. Generally, the reason that the cops are abusing people is because the guy is abusing the cops. He won't do what he's told to do. If you do what you're told to do by the cops, that means that you're strong enough that you've got the attitude, I'm a winner here, and I don't have to resist and fight with this cop. It is only the victims who fight with the police. Wise people don't don't fight. So that would be a kind of a video display that you can go look for. Is go look for cops beating people up and recognize, hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you, man. If as the you cops were says, lay down it. on the floor, lay down <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> as you were saying it, I realized I have so much uh, material every day just in real life. I don't need videos. <laughs> just, you just reminded me. You just reminded me. Okay. All right. Thank so you. now we progress on this fourth item, Sama Sankapa, coming to the point that we know that we can handle it no matter what. The Buddha calls this point in time, this knowledge, and we don't have that knowledge all the time. Sometimes we feel like a nut. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we know for sure I can handle anything. And then something comes by and says, oh, gosh, I can't handle that stuff. All right. So the question is, can you get yourself back into the state of, yes, I can handle it. Yes, I can do this. This knowledge, the Buddha says, is the first knowledge. It's the first step on the path. And it is super mundane, which means it's not worldly. It is uh noble and is an attitude that is not held by ordinary people this sama sankapa this attitude i can take care of this moment beginners in meditation they can't handle that while they're off on their own a very interesting example of that is uh, uh, solitary confinement in prisons. Why do they put people in solitary confinement in prisons? Is that that's supposed to be the very, very worst thing that they can do? 
that's the heavy dutiest punishment is to put somebody on their own. That sounds like heaven to me. It reminds me of uh, Brer Rabbit when he says, oh, please don't throw me into that briar patch. <laughs> Here we are, uh, beginning meditators, and we're looking for seclusion. And yet in our society, the worst thing they can do to you is put you in seclusion. Just like in the kids, we put them in the corner, right? Put a dunce hat on them, timeouts, all of that kind of stuff. We're taking their time away and putting them into isolation because we call that punishment. And so it's here we are. The opposite of it's, it's exactly learning how to not uh, get the most out of and an just natural inclination to getting wise. It's the exact opposite of, of teaching kids to get wise. It's, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know. Well, that's because our society is built upon a punishment model, not a rehabilitation model. Yeah, exactly. And because the whole society is built on that, I mean, that's why prisons are there. If prisons were actually used for uh, useful, then they wouldn't be prisons at all. They would be rehabilitations. They would be exactly. communes. They would exactly. be uh, a kibbutz, if you know what that is. They don't... Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so, uh, but here's the point, though. When the meditator is sitting down for practice, what does he do when he catches his mind wandering away? Kawanka says, when the mind wanders away <laughs> the breath never mind start again and what do we do we punish ourselves the recommendation is rehabilitate ourselves let's not punish ourselves if we have a thought of a seven and we recognize that that is a thought of a seven and then we have the thought of oh no i this is hard i uh, meditation is difficult i don't know what to do now we're having thoughts up at an eight or a nine the better thing to do is when we have a thought uh, and we see that thought, we can say, oh, never mind, start again, never mind, come back to practice, never mind, we can handle that. And as we continue to practice, there's, um, a settling in will occur. That in fact, one of the ways of talking about it is step two of the Sotapan is actually the first jhana, which is part of that attitude again, and the first jhana here is, is that I know that no matter what, I can bring myself, not just clean my mind out and handle what's happening, but I can go back into a state of real serenity. I can do this. I can practice that. By practicing it alone and coming into a state of serenity and joy and satisfaction on your own, you can learn then that you can do that no matter what, even if you're out in the world with people chasing you with a club. One of the main things about people chasing you with a club is don't run. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> don't run. Don't run from the cops. Victims don't run, run from, an, from an animal uh, um, focusing on you. Right. Don't don't run away. Don't run away from our own thoughts also. So this is how we begin to practice and we're beginning to gain the skills then or the knowledges of the soda pot.
the first knowledge is no matter what happens, I can handle this. The second thought would be no matter what happens, I can really, really chill. The third knowledge then is the knowledge of um, actually using this with other suttas, the language that we will, I would choose to use would be the knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. That's a very important quality or combination. The knowledge and vision of what is the path of the Buddha or the path to freedom and the knowledge and vision of what is not the path. Because right now, most of Western Buddhism is practiced as if it was the path and in fact, it's not. The, what is not the path is uh, doing what you're told to do. And yet in our society, that seems to be the only way to get along is do what you're told to do. We learned that as kids. If we don't do what we're told to do, we're going to get a spanking. Or we're going to get arrested. Or whatever happens, but we got to go along to get along, which is instinctual rather than going by wisdom with each thing that we do. So when we begin to get the knowledge of what is and is not the past, what we're really understanding here is, is that everything is revolving around Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda. That this is the real knowledge of what is the path. What is the path is to see the Dukkha by looking, by remembering to look, and then to change it from Dukkha to no dukkha, because we're actually getting pretty good at doing this. And then it finally dawns on us. This is the only thing that we've got. We don't have to have any other rules for anything. I don't have to have any rules about how I'm going to handle a cop. All I have to do is make sure that I'm not giving him any dukkha at all. If I give that cop any dukkha at all, he's going to give me back a whole ton of it. <laughs> And so that's the only job that we have to do is to not give people dukkha, especially ourselves. That's the third knowledge. This is actually a beginning to be the tipping point now between the path of the soda pond and the and it's actually bearing fruit. Because along with the bearing of the fruit of the soda pond, step four, the fourth knowledge is the knowledge of basically that I am not my own enemy. The fourth knowledge is that in fact, whatever wrongdoing that I do do, I should look at that as an education rather than something to be avoided. That if I see it as a rule, oh, I should not do that. That's one thing, but if I can say, oh, I don't do that because it's dukkha, or if I have created dukkha, I'm going to go do something about the dukkha, not about the rule. This is actually what we could call, in, in the Pali, there are two words, Hari Onopata. This is the transition of Hari Onopata. Hari Onopata basically means the distinction between shyness and embarrassment versus guilt. We don't want to get caught because we don't want to be seen as or we don't want to think of ourselves as something. This is shyness or embarrassment. But guilt is when we do recognize that we have done something wrong and it needs to be fixed. 
Could you repeat the Pali words, please? Harry takes a harried man to sing a harried song. Okay. This is when we're trying to avoid getting caught. And this is like what ordinary people do. We are ordinary people don't want to be seen as breaking the rules. And so ordinary people will try to hide just like a kid who breaks mom's favorite tinker uh, uh, item on her dresser drawers. What will he do with it? He'll throw it in the trash. He'll hide it. If he's really careful, he'll go bury it in the backyard, hoping that mom will just forget about it altogether. Right, we try to very early do it. Very early remember uh, uh, memories. Uh, is there a Suta reference for this? Oh, uh, the questions. <laughs> um. No, I don't actually have a reference for uh for Harry Onopata. That would be a good one to for you guys to go look up. I mean, you could Google Harry on Opata and see what happens. And, and put the word Suta in there and it'll give you the sutras that have Harry on Opata. H-A-R-I. O-P-A-T-A. -A. I don't think there's double letters in it. Thank you. Um, so there is shyness. That means that we're trying to hide. We do not want to be caught. We do not want to think of ourselves as doing something wrong. But here, the fourth knowledge is that, oh, my only job in life, if it's a job, is to be free from dukkha, which means I'm not going to go hide the dukkha. That's what I've been doing my whole life. That's why I've got so much of it. I've got it hidden all over the place. <laughs> And so we're going to have an exposure to it. Now, in the sutra that we're talking about, um, the uh, the example is, is that the monk who has done something wrong will find a senior teacher or an elder friend and go and confess that, in fact, uh, Marcus knows about this. Uh, this is actually there is ceremonialized within uh, Thailand's Buddhism. Um, in the in the paddy mock, the paddy mock is designed so that everyone who goes into paddy mock has already confessed all of the wrongdoings that they have done. Believe me, young monks, this is a this is a difficult time because they really haven't seen dukkha yet. Once the monk actually says, "This is really good for me. I'm going to be a whole lot better off if I confess to the stuff that I'm doing wrong." This is also a way of looking at it as making friends with what we're doing wrong. This is where I use the word, uh, the, the song from Simon and Garfunkel, hello darkness, my old friend. Then in fact, we do want to make friends with our own wrongdoing so that we can see it clearly, fess up to it, make amends, be rehabilitated and be free from it or remorse-free. We make kind of an, a pledge or a vow, uh, but that's always momentarily right here, right now, of renouncing that. We talked about this, in fact, last time, Robert. Do you remember? Um, no. 
You talked about guilt and how do you deal with guilt? We're talking about it again right now. You renounce that guilt and you say, I'm not ever going to do that again, but not in the sense of a plan, but in a sense of disgust or revulsion and then freedom right here, right now. That is not who I am. I don't do those things. That's in the past. It may have been yesterday, but today I'm a different person. This is actually part of the path, uh, step number four of becoming a soda pond is when we definitely do want to see our own wrongdoing so that we can make amends, get over it, give back the money that were stolen times seven or anything else like that, that absolves us of feeling any guilt at all so that we can come clean, literally really come clean, do what you need to do to fix your guilt. If you're guilty because you've done something to someone else, you need to apologize for that in a way, hopefully, that they'll accept it. So that's the fifth, uh, the fourth knowledge. The fifth knowledge of the Sotapan is the knowledge of basically the dedication, because if we are in fact now dedicated to seeing Dukkha and removing it, we're going to really put some time into it. The example uh, of this is twofold in the in the sutta. One is the example of the monk that even though he has the monkly duties of letter, uh, they use the example of sweeping. Even while he is sweeping, he's still thinking about the Dhamma. He is focusing upon the Dhamma. He's focusing upon is this Dukkha or is this not Dukkha? Is this Dukkha is what's the cause of it? What's the what's the thing? What's it like to be free from Dukkha? In other words, we do Anapanasati. Basically, any time that we can think about it, but we're dedicating ourselves now to doing this so that the monk's job no longer is just doing the monkly duties of the Wat. His job now is to pay attention to what's going on full time, if I could use that word full time, whenever he remembers it for sure. This is the fifth knowledge. The sixth knowledge, uh, oh, the other the other example is a, a mother cow who has had a young calf. And when she has that young calf, even though she is still eating grass, she's got an eye on that calf. She's not going to let that calf out of her sight. That's basically how we want to look at our lives now is we're not going to let Dukkha out of our sight. We're going to keep looking at it, keep watching and keep relishing in how marvelous the Dhamma is when we're free from that Dukkha. And so then the sixth knowledge is the, is the knowledge that uh, the word, the operative word is eager or enthusiastic. We become greatly enthusiastic about the Dhamma. We want to practice the Dhamma. Every time that we even think about the Dhamma, it starts with taking a deep breath. We remember it often now. This is the sixth knowledge, and this is the fruit of the Sotapan, is that, um, let us say, eagerness and excitement, not just for the Dhamma, but here the Dhamma is your whole life. And so you're absolutely eager to be alive. And then the seventh knowledge. The seventh knowledge is a very interesting one. And that is the knowledge of 
uh, that applying the Dhamma, thinking about the Dhamma, looking at the Dhamma, talking about the Dhamma, rehearsing the Dhamma, chanting the Dhamma over and over again brings great delight. So we're moving now from enthusiasm as the knowledge to an even higher one, and that is that it's delightful. Your life becomes delightful. Everything is just so marvelous. Everything is great. When one reaches this stage in the moment, that is the full fruition of the sotapod. That doesn't mean that he has, uh, let us say, carved out a niche or done away with uh, dukkha or anything like that but it has all to do with his attitude. And when we have the attitude that I can do this, when we have the attitude of I can become serene, I know what the path is and what the path is not, that I know for sure that I can handle my own wrongdoing uh, gracefully and handily, that I keep my eye on the Dhamma, I become enthusiastic about the Dhamma and I take great delight in the Dhamma. These are the seven knowledges of the Sotapod. And when you have all seven of those, you've got the fruit of the soda pot. And sometimes you got it, sometimes you don't. And it's best to keep practicing over and over again, because it's not, uh, uh, let us say, it's not a station in life or an event. But it's more of how you're handling this particular moment. That Achan Po was very careful with me about that, because we did discuss it one time about soda pot and all of that. And then a few months or a few weeks later, I think it was, and he comes back and he says, nope. <laughs> that it's all temporary. Sometimes you're out and sometimes you're not. And That's yet in West, Thank you, Dhamma. Yes, and, and in Western Buddhism, we always have the idea that, oh, it's a station. Now that you've got it, you'll not lose it. Oh, no. You can lose your delight. You don't have to stay delighted all the time, but that's part of the um, the fruit of the soda pond is that you're delighted. Merrily, 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 uh, <laughs> floating down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. That's the whole idea is that, yeah, we just start floating with this is how things are. So, this is right effort. In the beginning, the right effort is effortful. As we progress in our knowledge, it gets easier. You can see that, in fact, the attitude is a major contributor to making the right effort effortless. If we have the attitude of this is heavy, then it's going to take effort to carry it. If we have the attitude that this thing, there's nothing to it, this is lightweight, I can handle it, then it takes much less effort to do the same job. The example I use is mom comes into the kitchen and sees that the garbage is piled up and, and it's her teenage son's job to do it. And so she yells at him and says, come take out the trash. And he'll come and he'll take out the trash. But he doesn't like it. It's heavy. He does get it out to the road. Next day he comes in and he sees that there's trash in the kitchen and he knows it is his job. And he says, mom will be really happy if she sees that I've already cleaned up the trash. And so now he can mulch it out to the uh, to the curb happily and easily because he accepted as his uh, is his duty and he could do that duty happily. So 
This is how our attitude changes. The attitude from the loser to the attitude of a winner. And we need to keep practicing this over and over and over again because it is the first step to Sotapan. Is this change of attitude. And then all of the other six steps, I guess what? They're also small changes in attitude. There's not, so you could go for it in the sense of instead of calling it the seven knowledges, we could call it the seven attitudes. Sometimes you feel like you've got the right attitude, and sometimes you don't. If you can, if you can remember to look, you can see, oh, I can change my attitude right now. I don't have to keep the same attitude. And then popping right up to the surface, we're a soda pond. And then we'll have an unwholesome thought and glub, 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 back down into the sewer we go again. But going back to that concept of weighty things, remember the scales that we had to where now we're putting on wholesome thoughts and, and having fewer unwholesome thoughts? Over time, what happens is, is that our new current thoughts begin to change our attitude. Not only that, but it begins to change our memory. So that when something happens, instead of having the thoughts that we used to have about it, we'll begin to have new thoughts about it. So uh, the example is daddy is busy and the child comes up and daddy's ordinary way of saying, go away, kid, don't bother me. But now he's practicing. And when the kid comes up, now he can be really joyful with the child. It's very easy to do that if he can remember to make that change in attitude. And the best way to get that change of attitude is by practice, by rehearsal, constant, over and over and over again. Ten minutes, keep practicing. Then wait for a couple hours and keep another ten minutes. Keep practicing. Get yourself into a really good state. And so that means then that six, seven, six, five, six times a day, you're in a really, really good state as opposed to whatever state that you're normally in. And if we keep practicing like that, then this practice that we have will begin to rub off. The sati that we're practicing with each breath now comes when we need it most. When the child comes up, or when the cop comes up, or when death comes up, we'll need it really big time then. Let's make sure that we practiced well enough so that it will be there when we need it. Because if we don't remember, we can't do anything. It doesn't matter what all of the skills you have. If you don't remember to practice those skills when you need to, they're of really of no value. That's why sati is such a key ingredient. And I say key because it's on the Eightfold Noble Path. It's on the, uh, the Satipatthana. There is sati. Anapana sati. And then the Sambhojana, the first item on the list of the seven factors of enlightenment is unremitting sati. Yeah. And it keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. But even for the Sotapan, sometimes it doesn't keep coming back. But then he's dropped back off the horse. He's no, I mean, he's crash landed or whatever. In that moment, he's not a Sotapan. The question is, can he pop himself back up pick himself up, climb back on that horse, and hidey-ho, go away. That's the whole point, is can we make a change 
even though we have collided with the ground. We can pick ourselves back up. Never mind that the mind has wandered away. We can come back and start again. So we've got various degrees of right effort. Right effort is going to be there all along and is a skill to be developed. And as the skill develops, it gets easier. Hey, you were talking about the um, seven factors there too. Um, there's uh, an element to like when it's developed, right? It becomes energy, right? Like that's with the seven right. factors. Yeah. Exactly. That when uh, um, uh, what used to be right effort, oh, I'll go take the trash out of my mind, is hot diggity dog. I see you now. Okay. That's the way that we're cultivating, is we're cultivating that we're really happy to see the dukkha. Mm -hmm. Why are we really happy to see the dukkha? Because we can grab it by the neck when we see it and throw it right out. If we can't see it, if we can't catch it, that's what makes it hard. So uh, we can congratulate ourselves when we see the dukkha. Instead of hating ourselves because we saw the dukkha and we don't like the dukkha, we're now going to be congratulating ourselves because we can't see the dukkha because only after we see it can we do something about it. And if we have that right attitude, doing something about it is easy. And if you hate it, then it's hard. Yeah. So, DJ, yes. does, that, does that answer your questions about right effort? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's just been a wonderful conversation. So I'm, I'm glad that it was brought up. <laughs> yeah. Robert, did we get uh, your your questions about soda pond? Did we get that covered? Absolutely. Thank you, Dalrato. Mm -hmm. Be careful of those who claim something. He's gotten away from the mic. It's hard to hear. Carl, do you have something to say? No, I just wanted to uh, just to thank everyone for this good, beautiful conversation. The old friends and the young friends. Thank you. What was that last thing? I just said thank you to the old friends and the young friends for the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's one of the reasons why I like to have this in a small group is you guys get uh, a chance to know each other. And you can communicate online that this is uh, the building of the Sangha. It's good to have friends, Dhamma friends. It really is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Asher, do you have anything to say before we finish? Hello. Uh, Nothing in particular at the moment. Uh, I really enjoy having Dhamma friends, though, so it's lovely to talk to you all. Okay. Veda, what's your thing? You just uh, said it. I mean, the last 10 minutes I was 
my my mind was just repeating friends, friends, friends. <laughs> friends Very good. on the inside, friends on the outside. Very good. Okay. Friendly and honest. Uh -huh. All right, guys. Well, we'll finish this call now. Thank you guys so much. This has been a really great call. I think that it's been a value for everybody, each one. Thank you. So, Thanks, Saru, Saru, Saru. Robert, happy, we'll see happy, you happy. later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, guys.